Texas. And so this morning we're going to be continuing our series called uh, Seven, where we look at the seven letters that were written to the seven churches of the beginning of the book of Revelation. And so this morning we're going to be in uh, Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 7. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one located in the seat back in front of you. And if you don't have one, you can call your own. Consider that a gift from us. And we believe that to be one of the greatest gifts that could ever be given to someone. So we're, again, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you can and are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7 says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who called themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this, I, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I just want to say welcome to you, uh, especially if it's your first time. You know, we always just want to say we're so glad you made us a part of your week. Thanks for coming. Um, as Ty said, we're kind of at the, the front end here of a brand new sermon series, uh, walking through these seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation, which are these seven actual churches that were found in Asia uh, at the time that John wrote this book. And yeah, uh, last week we started not at Ephesus, which is where we're going to begin, the first church today, but we started in the first chapter of Revelation um, looking at the life of John and particularly looking at the experience that John had on the island Patmos, which is where he was exiled, um, as he saw the risen and ascended Jesus uh, while he was praying one morning on the Lord's Day. And so we stated a couple things I think are important before we jump in uh, this morning into the first letter. And, and I want to do a little bit of a recap because I think it is necessary. It is kind of the platform from which you can really understand why we're going through these letters. And so why is it so helpful for us? Like why are we reading letters that were written 2,000 years ago to local churches, local congregations uh, in Asia Minor? And, you know, because it would, you know, time would, we don't have enough time to, to talk through just how different like we are than they were at this time. So how is this even relevant? Um, and here's what, I, what we talked about last week. These letters are not only, not only were they timely and specific to these seven churches that were located along this trade route uh, in modern day Turkey, um, but because God has preserved these words for us in the scriptures, we can be sure that these letters are timeless. So this is kind of the whole understanding that we have of the Bible in its essence, that this book is timeless. God preserves it for us because we can gain insight, not just insight, but salvation insight by reading 
these ancient texts. Now, I want to talk about why that's so, because Christians do have a unique worldview. Christians have a unique worldview that time is linear, that there was a beginning, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that there, we are headed somewhere, that we don't believe that ultimately time is nebulous, that it's all like this, just circular, but we believe that there is a, a beginning and an end, like there's an end of the age. This is why Jesus says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is unique to Christianity, this idea of a linear time. But, listen to this, but Christians also believe that time is cyclical and seasonal. This is why in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, for everything under heaven, there's a time and season. And he talks about, in the very first chapter of Ecclesiastes, he uses all of these symbols talking about how all of the streams flow to the sea, and yet the sea is never full. He says the sun rises, and then it sets, and then it returns back to the place that it rises. And he uses all of these analogies because he's saying that there's a cyclical nature, a seasonal nature to how God has created the world. So what does that mean for us, that it's both? It means that the world goes like this. This is what the Christian believes. The, the, the world has a starting, and then it goes like this that we go in cycles and we're linear. So we have a beginning and we have an end and we also go in these cycles. It's why we say things like we need to learn history so that we don't repeat history. If you've ever read history, what's the truth? We repeat it, <laughs> right? Why do we repeat it? Have we ever asked this? Why do we repeat it? It's because we're like this. So when we read the seven churches, here's what I want you to see. There is a specific reason Jesus is addressing these churches. There's a specific uh, topics he's going to aim at, but the reason that these words were preserved for us is because we need to incline our ears to ask, where are we on this secular or, or cyclical and linear line where we can see ourselves in Ephesus, we can see ourselves in Thyatira, we can see ourselves in Smyrna, and therefore the words of Jesus stand for us as though he was speaking. Now, this isn't the first time I've had the privilege to preach these, te these texts in particular. I love uh, the seven churches of Revelation, and the reason for this uh, is not because Revelation is this uh, very symbolic apocalyptic book, you know, and we all kind of love to speculate about what it's all about. No, the reason I love these texts in particular in Revelation is because Jesus' words to the seven churches here are so incisive. They're so raw. They're so real. Um, and I say that to say that for the next seven weeks, I have to give you fair warning, at least five of them are tough, <laughs> At least five. The reason I say at least five is because there's only two churches Jesus doesn't have a rebuke for. And those would be Smyrna and Philadelphia. The rest of them, he has a simultaneous encouragement and then also a rebuke for them. And Jesus' words here, they have a way, because they're so timeless, that they speak directly to your heart. From 2,000 years ago to now, you can see yourself and see where, where perhaps we have allowed certain things that we would never admit or maybe even never be aware of if Jesus didn't speak them so directly. That's why I've always been transfixed by these passages because even though there's such a vast difference between us and first century Turkey, you know, first century uh, Asia Minor, that humanity has a commonality in our sinful waywardness and Jesus knows how to speak directly to that and where he can hit the person 2,000 years ago that was dealing with things. You know, they didn't have modern day lighting. They didn't have modern day AC. They didn't have, obviously didn't have social media technology. And yet these words, they just hammer home. And when I read through these letters again last year, I thought, man, these are prophetic for the church today, you know. So we ended last week with these two things that we really wanted to have. Number one is, can we have the spiritual eyes to see Jesus as the risen, ascended king like John saw him? Can God help us to see Jesus as the ruling, 
reigning king with all of the authority, all of the power, all the wisdom, all the knowledge, and that he has a special eye to his church, that he cares about what's happening, he cares about what's going on with us, and he wants to speak into what's happening in this, not just in that time, but in this time to us. And if we can have those spiritual eyes, my prayer is that we could have those inclined ears. Each each church in the book of Revelation, each letter that's written to these churches, it always ends with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what I want to pray for you this morning and for myself is, God, give us an ear. Because if I had to guess, there's a lot of things that could preclude you from hearing from Jesus. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this. It's we have many things that vie for our attention. But in order for us to hear, we have to actually incline our ear, which is why Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Hearing is different than sitting underneath or just, you know, basically letting someone's words wash over you. Hearing requires listening attentiveness and allowing for your heart to be follow, a follow ground to, to allow those seeds to plant. So that's what I want to pray for us, is God, give us that. Give us that courage to hear your words. If you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, we first want to start with gratitude, with gratefulness. Your word, it's timeless, and it stands, and we don't have to run around trying to figure out what we should talk about when we get together like this, because your word's been preserved for us, and we know that that's because you are so gracious, you're so merciful, you love us, you care about us. And so, Lord, secondarily, we want to pray, would you give us ears to hear your word? Jesus, these red letters that you spoke directly to these churches, give us ears to hear. Give us joy in our hearts as we hear it, even in the areas where it may be biting, where it may be cutting, where it may sting. We ask that we could, Lord, feel that, hear that sting, and, and not run away from it, my God, but to lean into it. We, we love you and we trust you. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. Okay, so let's start with the first three verses here that Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus. It says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and you are bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Now, Ephesus was a church in uh, the scriptures that Paul planted, the Apostle Paul. We see this in Acts 19, which we're going to get to there a little bit later in the sermon. He visited this place twice. One time he stayed there for three years. He also sent his, his messenger, his fellow laborer, Timothy, one of his disciples, to go back and care for this church. Ephesus was one of the chief churches in Asia. You've got to think a big metropolitan city full of bustling commerce, lots of business, but it's also known in the Bible and was known at the time for massive idolatry. There's a specific goddess that's worshipped in Ephesus called Diana or Artemis. These are just a conflation of two different goddesses, but it's the same idea in Ephesus. They, you get this over the course of history. Well, they'll take two goddesses and they'll end up merging them into one in order to create the syncretism for the people to worship. And that was true of Ephesus. Most people here were idol worshippers of this goddess of fertility which would have been a, a massive thing at the time because in order to have, in order for you to carry on with your progeny, you know, having children was an important thing. And so when, when women were struggling with infertility, they would go to Diana the, or Artemis and they would worship. They do all sorts of pagan rituals in order to get the favor of Diana. 
I want to mention that to say this would have been a very tough place to do gospel ministry, a very difficult place. You know, Paul did not choose this place because it was, you know, it was uh, just ripe for people to agree with him right off the bat. This is a place that he was going to be met with serious opposition, and he was. But the starting line for the church at Ephesus, which, again, we'll talk about towards the end, was equally as powerful and as bustling as the city itself. The way that Ephesus began was Paul showing up in Acts 19, preaching the gospel, and they see so many people radically changed and burning their idols that they end up experiencing a riot in the city because the silversmiths and the business leaders are so uh, frustrated with Paul for preaching the gospel because the people had taken all of their idols and melted them down in the middle of the city. So now there was no, lo- mo- no more demand for the silversmiths to sell idols. And so they were so angry at this that it was, up, it was upending their socioeconomic structure of the city that they started a riot. And basically the political and the religious at the time, the pagan religious, get together and they intertwine in order to fight against Paul in a riot. It's really interesting. It's really intriguing. But it shows you just how powerfully this church was planted. They were seeing God's power. And we're going to talk a little bit about one of the incidents that happens with the sons of Siva in order to just kind of kick that off. But, so what does Jesus have to say to Ephesus? The first part is encouraging what does he encourage them with? Well, number one, he identifies himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the golden lampstands. This means Jesus introduces himself to Ephesus as both the powerful leader who wields the authority and as the loving shepherd who walks among you. It's a call to attention with power and authority, and it's a call to loving presence, I'm with you, I'm among you, I know you. The first thing he says is, I know your works. In other words, he knows all the things about you. So let's move into that, I know your works. He says, I know your works, I know your toil, I know your patient endurance. You have endured patiently and you've been bearing up for my namesake. Now when I first read that, I thought, how simultaneously comforting is it and terrifying to know that Jesus knows your works? Anybody else? It's like you tend to think, since it's an encouraging part, that maybe he's only being encouraging here, but you got to be honest about it. It's kind of like when, if your parents were to come in whenever you were younger and be like, hey, I know everything you did today. You're like, okay. You're like, all the good stuff, you know, or like, did they hear from my teacher and it was a good report or bad or, you know, whatever it may be. Jesus shows up and the first thing he says is, I know everything you've done. I'm like, Okay. But I think that the overwhelming thrust of this is for Jesus to tell them he, he is acknowledging, he wants them to know he's seen everything, all their labor, all their sacrifice, all of the things that they may have been feeling like they've been overlooked for. He's acknowledging and praising them for not giving up, for enduring. And man, we could probably spend all morning just there, which is Jesus has seen everything that you've ever done. He knows all of the things that you felt overlooked by. He knows all of the things that, you know, you, you feel like someone should have acknowledged you for. Moms in the room that have been parenting your kids and you feel like no one ever recognized. Jesus sees these things. And I think that's important for us to hear because if we're honest with one another, we've all hit that moment where we feel like we should just give up. Let's just take the easy route. Let's just find a place that we can emotionally exist or relationally exist that isn't as difficult as where we are right now? You ever been in a friendship or a community or something like that where it gets difficult and you're like, why don't I just bail on this because that seems to be easier? And when we endure, but no one comes alongside and said, man, it gives you an attaboy, like, man, you really endured. You feel like I shouldn't have endured anyway. No one realizes how much I've gone through and Jesus shows up and says, I know. He sees. 
But then he goes on and says this. Also, he wants to encourage them because, quote, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. This is key. Ephesus has been the theologically faithful church that roots out false teachers. They're the biblical church. They're like the noble Bereans in the book of Acts, that they don't only take these teachers' words at face value. Like the, the church at Ephesus didn't just listen to sermons and say, was it comfortable? Was it applicable? Was it relevant? Was it funny? They said, was it true? And Jesus says, I love this about Ephesus. They don't just listen to what these preachers have to say and think, did I get Holy Ghost goosebumps? It's probably good. That's not Ephesus. They're not those people. You know, Paul left Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, and he warned them about false teachers who were already among them that were going to come in and try to divide the church. They took that very seriously. And he, Jesus is encouraging them in this. He's saying this Ephesus is not the church that lightly allows shallow faith. Ephesus is not the church that doesn't challenge one another theologically. They seek out the truth from the scriptures. They don't bear false teachers in their midst, but they actually call them out. They keep the pulpit pure. They fight to preserve the the primacy of scripture in the church. Jesus even commends them in verse six for hating the work of the Nicolaitans, which was a famous false teaching sect in that day that was trying to hinder the church and trying to divide the church. And Jesus says, you saw them for what they were. You caught them early and you kicked them out. And he says, great job. Now, we're going to get into this in future sermons more deeply, but I just don't want to rush past this to get to the warning because this is telling us that Jesus cares deeply about the truth and purity of the gospel that is preached in the pulpit of his church. Let's not pass that over. He cares. It matters. Like the role of the minister, my role is to preach the word in season and out, which means that I'm supposed to preach the gospel when it's popular or when it's not popular, when it's culturally acceptable or when it's culturally abhorrent. Christian preaching is my role, which is preaching that exalts the true testimony of Jesus Christ as lined out in scripture. And it's my responsibility to make sure that I do that without reservation and without cowardice. And listen, that's no small thing because every human being, just because I'm like, you know, I don't know, 18 inches higher than you right now with a face mic, every human being likes to be liked. Every human being wants to be approved of, and that I'm not immune to that, but my job is to push that aside in order to be honest, even if honest means offensive at times, right? And not liked. And Jesus says at Ephesus, man, you guys are great at this. You've done a fantastic job. Like at Providence, we believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, Romans 1.16. So we want to make sure that we do not abandon it. We don't tweak it. We don't try to dilute it. We don't try to avoid it. We don't try to make it more palatable. We just preach it. And that's not easy to do. And, and Jesus comes in and says, listen, I know that hasn't been easy in Ephesus for you to do that. Great job. But listen, that's just the role of the pastor. What's the role of the member? The role of the members is to be faithful students of the word in order to hold those preachers accountable where necessary to this call. The temptations for Christians in our day is to prioritize a church experience that makes us feel comfortable and serves our desires. But Jesus says, no, you need to seek out truth at all cost. Like Jesus challenges Ephesus in a way here because he's, a, he's encouraging all of the people in the Ephesian church. You guys have been more about truth than you were about convenience, than you were about comfort. Jesus encourages this church that they didn't go and basically try to have like, you know, look at their church like they do their gym membership. It's like, well, do they have a hot tub or not have a hot tub? What's their coffee like, you know? Is it great? I'm I'm kind of a coffee artisan myself, you know? Does the kids' ministry offer snacks and are they allergy-free, gluten-free? 
COVID free, you know, whatever, all the things we want them to be free, right? That's a bad joke, you guys probably, but <laughs> you guys are like, oh, some are mad and some are happy. It's always happens. All the things we want, it's like, are we checking off all of the lists? Is the pastor funny or is he not funny? Is he, you know, good looking or is he not good looking? Is, you know, does the church look like me or not look like me? Do the members have my same racial demographic or not, socioeconomic background or not? Do my home groups feel comfortable or not? You know, do I walk in and feel like everything's good or not? Is the food good or not? Is the AC on in the right temperature in Houston? That's important or not. Lighting good or not. Worship good or not. See, I can go on and on and on with this. And Jesus says, I encourage you because you cared about the gospel. You cared about the truth. And you hammered down on that. You were unwilling to compromise on the one thing that matters the most. Jesus said the truth sets us free. And Ephesus was full of truth. And I want to say before we move on to the warning, that's no small thing, right? It's like, man, to be full of truth in the midst of a culture that actually is antagonistic towards it. In in Ephesus, that was a big stand. And Jesus says, great job. Okay, but now now we have to get to the tough part, right? You guys are like, now we're getting to the tough part. Okay, here we go. Verse four. But I have this against you. Ugh. When you read that, you're like, the one person you don't want to have a, you know, ought with is who? Jesus, right? It's like Jesus shows up and he's saying all the good things. Like up until this point, they're getting like a five-star review on Facebook page, right? This church is killing it. And then Jesus goes, but I do have one thing against you. Honestly, one thing may as well be a million. It's Jesus. What is it that he has against you? We're going to just focus on verse four, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, this is a serious indictment. You're doing all the right things, but the one thing that matters, the heart, isn't in it. It's twisted. You're doing all the right things, but it's not coming from love. You lost that. Now, hear me on this. This is the scariest thought. You see this in Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things? And I will respond to them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. In other words, they did all the righteous things, but their heart wasn't in Jesus. They didn't do it for a love of Jesus. And therefore, they were deceived. And Ephesus is finding themselves on the bad end of that analogy. You guys are doing a great job for all the wrong reasons. Oh, great. But what does it mean, though? This is a quote from Robert Murray McShane a Scottish pastor, and he says this. This is a good analogy, I thought. He says, do you remember when you were first introduced to Christ? When you first entered into the presence of God? When you were enabled to say, he is mine? You had heard of him often before, but do you remember the time when first you could say, my beloved is mine? What a burning love you had then in your chest. In your chest. Do you remember the leap of joy that came into your bosom? This was first love. This was the love of espousals, and this is what you have left. I thought that was helpful because he's, he's lining out for you this, this sense, this experiential moment when we all first came to know Christ. And he uses the example of love of espousals, I think, because he's talking about this idea of falling in love. Now, if you've ever never had this experience, I commend it to you. But for those of you who have, remember yourself when you first fell in love. We often call it giddy. And the reason we call it giddy is because it's euphemistic. We don't want to call it insane, which is what it really is sometimes. It's why you'll do some of the craziest things for the people that you love. You've ever heard that? The, the scripture actually says that love can be as jealous as the grave. Anybody? 
It's like, I love you so much, like Lenny of Mice and Men. You know, we got kids. I won't go to the full analogy, but you know what I mean? You love them so much, you'll do nutty things. And, th- and things aren't really burdensome. Like, I started doing weird things when I fell in love with my wife. We were also very young. But I noticed, like, I started listening to different types of music. Listen to hardcore music, Metallica, and then so all of a sudden, like, dashboard confessionals comes, makes its way into my, like, why am I listening to this? I started doing things like journaling. Like, who does that? Oh, listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not against journaling. I journal all the time now. But as a young man, like, it wasn't a thing for me, and then it was. And I also did things that, you know, it were never a burden. Just overwhelmingly were willing to do things for my wife, like show up at places, give her neat gifts, plan out date nights, all of these different things. Now, if you're married right now, then you probably find yourself where I am, where your wife's looking at you and saying, when have you been doing that for me lately? And that's kind of the point of the text, isn't it? It's like where it used to be, it was never a burden for me to stop and get flowers for, you know, my wife who I was falling in love with at the time, we were just kids. Now it seems to be that I'm driving home and I know what's going to happen back at home and it's been a hard day at work and I got, know the kids are going to be there ready to light things on fire and my wife might be there, might have to leave and go do something that she's going to have to do at work and then I'm like, oh, it's Valentine's Day. And I make the shame walk into the Kroger tent and I don't want to do it. <laughs> you guys all know what I'm, well, the men know what I'm talking about, right? It's like you're in CVS, you're like, is there a nice gift here that I can get? <laughs> that isn't obviously a CVS gift. It's like, thank you, you got a porcelain teddy bear for $7.99, you didn't take the tag off. Like, okay. (laughs) Now, I want you to take yourself back to when you first fell in love with Jesus. And if you're not there yet, then listen, this isn't gonna apply to you, but maybe just lean in. Little could derail me when I first started following Jesus. Like, I knew that my service to God was like a drop in the water compared to the ocean of God's love and service to me in Christ. It was, I never served and thought like, man, I hope people saw it. I just was so happy that I was alive in Christ. Like I remember, I I just gotta be, I'm gonna be honest, this is probably bad, but it's the second service, you get like another version of me. I would listen to songs on KSBJ that I openly mocked a month before. Like I used to make fun of them and now I've got my windows down and I'm singing songs that I know I thought were super cheesy. And some of you, the reason I know that might be offensive because they're songs you love. I hated them. And I would just be listening to them, roll my windows down. You People would pull up next to me at lights and be like, who is this guy? But I didn't care. It was an abandoned type of love. Paul knew the dangers of losing our love when he wrote his letter to the Corinthians. And some of us, we know this text only through weddings, but I want you to know it's not a wedding text only. This is the first Corinthians 13. Before he gets into the love is patient, love is kind, love bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things. First, he says this. This is the first three verses. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Even if I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Paul knew one of the most dangerous things for us in life is to learn to do all of the right religious things and lose a love for God that motivates it. That the principal foundation of all of our behaviors come from a deep-seated love for Jesus because he loved us first. And listen, this is twofold. I don't think the rebuke here from Jesus is only vertical. It's also horizontal. But listen to me, the way the Bible's laid out is to tell you, if you don't have the vertical love first actually laid out appropriately in your heart, you will never fix the horizontal love. You can't love neighbor well without knowing the God who loves you. 
Which brings me to this major point of application to this text, and it's a simple question, but it's a, it's a biting one. Have you lost the love that you had at first? Well, how do I know that, Court? I don't, maybe. I wrote down just a few questions that might help, and by help I mean sting. <laughs> Have the commands of God become burdensome to you? Like when you think about obedience or serving, like, oh, here we go again. Does worship come freely and lavishly from your heart towards Jesus? Has service to God and to your neighbor become a dread because you'd just rather be alone, be by myself? People are not to be trusted, so why should they be served? Have the cares of the world taken the seat of affection in your heart, snuffed out that childlike love for God and love for others? This one's a little bit longer, but have you become more critical than congenial, more calloused than compassionate, more prejudicial than prayerful, more heavy-handed than heavy-hearted? Is your joy more susceptible to the whims of cultural tides? I watch the news. I'm no longer joyful. Peace is more swayed by current circumstances. The bank account's low. I don't have peace. Bank account's high. Let's go on vacation. You know, friends, If you can't feel this indictment from the Lord, I dare say maybe we've stopped our ears because I think all of us find this, don't we? This is the the temptation of the human heart that wants to kind of harden over time to not have that fresh, deep love for Jesus. And that's why I think Paul wrote that to the Corinthians. It wasn't just to them. It was a reminder to him. It's it's the same thing that any minister does. There are many times as I preach, it's a reminder to me because this is the proclivity of the human heart to lose your first love. Now, Jesus is so merciful. He's a great pastor. He doesn't just tell you what's wrong. He tells you, hey, what should you do about it, though? And he does. He does. So let's go to verse 5. He says, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and I'll remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now notice here, Jesus doesn't say, and this is what we tend to do in the church. See, we got too caught up in all that Bible stuff and all that stuff you talked about at first, and that's what made us stop loving. Maybe so, but Jesus doesn't say, hey, quit all that Bible stuff, just do the loving stuff. He doesn't even mention that as a problem. He just says, you need to go back and do what you've been doing at the beginning. Now, in order for us to really understand that, we have to go back and see what Ephesus was doing at the beginning. So if you do have your Bible, you can go with me to Acts chapter 19. It's a quick left-hand turn in your Bible if you don't have time to do that. It's going to be up on the screen behind me. What was actually happening in the beginning at Ephesus? Well, Acts chapter 19, I'm going to start in verse 14, but let me set the stage for you. Paul showed up into the town. He starts preaching the gospel, and there's these sons of a high priest named Sceva who decide that they've heard Paul preach, so they know about this authority that Paul walks in. They've seen Paul be speaking in the name of Jesus, and these amazing things happen. So they think, listen, if I can just go into this house where these demon-possessed man lives, and I invoke the name of Jesus, then that means that I will also have the authority, and then this demon will flee. And so we're going to pick up the story in the middle of that where these sons of Sceva are stepping in. Now I want you to picture this. This is a perfect analogous moment for the Ephesian church. These boys are trying to operate in faithfulness to God and do all the right things without a love for Jesus. (laughs) You catching that? Like they know that Jesus is powerful and they believe it. They have intellectually ascended to say, yes, God is real. Yes, Jesus is his son. But they don't love Jesus. They don't know Jesus. And they want to walk in the authority of Jesus. Watch how bad it goes for them. Let's go. Verse 14. 
Seven sons of a Jewish priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Okay, so when the demons start talking back to you, you should just book it. Just leave. It's like if you ever walk in one of these positions and you start like trying to cast out a demon and the demon starts to talk to you, you're like, mm, you know, all the red alerts should be going off. Listen to what he says. I know Jesus. I love that the demons are like, oh, we know Jesus. And then I, like Paul's got to feel good about this. I've heard of Paul. <laughs> the demons are talking together like, listen, if this guy Paul shows up, just, just go ahead and leave now. But then they turn to the, guy, the, little, the boys and say, but who are you? Meaning you have no authority. The only authority that Paul walks in is attached to Jesus whom they know. And the only authority that Christians walk in is attached to Jesus whom we know and love. And if we don't have a love for Jesus, we can't walk in the authority of Jesus. Therefore, all of the behaviors that we may carry with us, even if they look right on the outside, Jesus said they're like whitewashed tombs. They look pretty on the outside, dead on the inside. All our spiritual behaviors without a love for Jesus might as well not exist. And they deceive us into thinking that maybe we could live this life. And here's what Jesus is trying to save us from as a church. What happens to the seven sons of Sceva? Because we think that maybe there's not going to be a consequence for this until later. It's not what happens to these boys. Listen to what it says. Verse 16, the man in whom was the, was the man in whom was the evil spirit mastered all of them and overpowered them. And so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. <laughs> oh man. Have you ever gotten beaten so bad that they beat your clothes off you? That's what happened to these boys. Beat them up naked and they ran. Think about coming home with a black eye. That's embarrassing. Coming home with a black eye naked. That's what happened to these boys, to their dad. Jesus is trying to save us from walking in such spiritual deception that we end up getting so beat up that we are ashamed and naked with nothing on. We find ourselves at our lowest point in our lives because we're trying to walk around with no love for Jesus, just doing the right things. Listen to what the Bible says here though. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, Jews and Greeks. Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, now here's the key, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced the magic arts and brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Listen, this is not like Harry Potter. This is not like they brought their Harry Potter series and burned it in front of everybody, okay? This is real deal, like dark magic. You got to understand Ephesus is way darker than you could ever imagine. The way they worshiped their, their fertility goddess was through sexual immorality. You saw dark things on the, in the open in Ephesus. So if this is like dark magic, things you did in your house that you didn't want people to know about, it would probably be almost inexplicably uh, verboten. Like you don't want to hear that. You ever gone into a home group or gone as a Christian? I remember the first time someone confessed something to me that I didn't know what to do with it. Anybody else? If you've never been there before, it's coming for you. I didn't know what to do. I had been so used to just basic religious confession. I don't pray enough. I'm not being such a good boy. I need to do, it's like, oh, okay, that's good. Not that I'm saying that saying you don't pray enough is not a legitimate confession. It is. I'm just saying that that's kind of normal, right? It's like we come to one another and we realize like we're kind of jokes. Like, yeah, I, I really want to follow Jesus, but I'm kind of a joker. Like, I know what I should do. I don't do that. We're like, yeah, yeah, I'm a joker too. Let's pray. Then someone comes and divulges this kind of stuff. And you're like, you're looking for like, like, I'm a pastor. I'm looking for a pastor. I'm like, is there any pastors in the room? I wish I had someone on speed dial. I'm like, I need to call someone who's better than me and more equipped to handle this. And that's happening on the regular here. They're coming up with the most grotesque things. They're laying them at the feet of Jesus by burning them in the middle of a city. In case you don't know the kind of sacrificial love that's being 
extolled here, it's 50,000 pieces of silver worth of stuff, which one piece of silver was worth a whole day's wages. 50,000 men's wages is being burned in one day as they all confess their practices. Now, obviously, this is a vision of healthy gospel community in action. You know, we, we basically have set up Providence in such a way that our home groups would be these kind of communities where we're able to confess to one another, repent to one another. Jesus is telling Ephesus, you need to get back to this raw, this gritty, this real, this authentic confession. Remember where you've fallen from and don't think that now you've reached a spiritual plane where you can look back at baby Christians and say, I remember when I was there. No, we still need to have that kind of raw, gritty confession in who we are now. When we start thinking that because we've been Christians for a longer amount of time that all of a sudden we've hit varsity level Christianity, that's when we lose our first love. This is not what the scripture tells us. The scripture calls us to this kind of lifelong humility where we recognize, I would say, the deeper and more mature you become as a Christian, the more sinful you realize you really are. It doesn't get darker when you go into the cave of, or it doesn't get lighter, it gets darker as you go into the cave of your heart. You realize there's basement level floors of your sinfulness as you grow as a Christian. You're like, oh, there's areas of lack of submission in my heart. I didn't even know those basement floors existed. And hear me on this. That may sound dark. You're like, man, I I don't want to hear that, that stuff. The reason it's so important that you hear it is because Christ is intent on bringing light into that darkness and actually making you whole. So it's like the house that has closets in it that are filled maybe even with fire and you just learn to live with smoke. And you just inhale the smoke. It's no big deal. It's like, well, everybody dies. I guess I'm going to die of smoke inhalation. Rather than saying, let's find the fires and allow the firefighter, Jesus, to come in and, he, and actually put that stuff out. Jesus says, get back to this kind of raw, nitty-gritty, idol-killing confession repentance. Remember where you've fallen. Go back. Because here's what happens when you realize that you're at your low. You realize all this stuff that's in your heart and you finally confess it. Then Jesus just comes and swoops in and you actually fall in love with them all over again. Do you know what happens when you ignore confession in your life for long enough? You don't think you need Jesus anymore. He becomes an add-on to your life. And therefore, you start to slowly but surely, I don't need Jesus, therefore I don't need church, therefore I don't need community. And you see how this goes? And therefore, maybe if you're religious enough, you start looking at church more as a way, once again, like, like Ephesus didn't do, you start looking at church more as a way of what did they do for me rather than I just love Jesus and I want to be a part of people who love him too. Okay, so what, what do we do with that, though? I think we have to make sure we know that just because uh, Ephesus had the idols that were obvious, Artemis and Diana, we have culturally acceptable idols that we have been coy with for a long, long, long time. I think they've slowly sapped us of our love for the Lord Jesus because they've convinced us. They've convinced us that, listen to me, Things like our depression, our lack of lackluster spiritual life, our calloused and monotonous engagement with community and others, our ritualistic addictions to the flesh, our idols have convinced us that that's what life is like, so you just need to deal with it. Jesus shows up to say, no, I've come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. His hard words here are meant to lead you to life. I heard one pastor say, hard words produced soft hearts. Soft words can produce hard hearts. Jesus speaks directly and raw here, not because he hates you, because he loves you. It's like the father or the mother that sees their child running out into the street and they yell, they scream. And you know, you could have that one person that comes to you online and says, how dare you scream at children? Harsh. I'm calling CPS on you. But if you're a real parent, you say, I scream because I want to preserve life. It's like I don't whisper to a child running out into the street. Jesus comes and he speaks these hard words because he wants to create the soft heart that we might hear him. Idols lie to you 
They overpromise and underdeliver. What kind of idols do I think we need to see? Listen, I want to stay, and I said this to the nine. When I wrote these down, I was legitimately thinking, where are the idols that vie for affection for, for all of us? Not just preaching it, but actually internalizing it where I see it in my own life. And an idol is not just something that you carve up in your woodshed and then decide to go worship. An idol is anything that devised to take the place of God in your heart and life, to take the seat of affection that only God should have. An idol is anything that we look to for comfort, that we look to for hope, we look to for peace, we look to for joy, we look to for satisfaction apart from Christ. They take the ultimate place, which means that idols might be morally neutral things that you've made into God things, divine things. Hey, listen to me. Idols might even be good things that you've made into God things, and now they're a bad thing. Now they're an evil thing. Things like entertainment idols. We want to be entertained more than anything else because maybe our lives are very hectic and difficult and entertainment is an escape. Technological idols. You know, we hold them in our hands and we would attach them to our bodies just to make it more convenient if we could. Idols of sexuality and pleasure, idols of ambition and success, idols of fortune and finance, idols of approval and acceptance, idols of convenience and comfort. These are all the idols. They're trying, they're lying constantly to us. And listen to me, all of these idols are rooted in God-given gifts, right? They just convince us to make the gift ultimate. It's like, man, when you go and you eat a, a wonderful meal, you should say, thanks be to God that God made this meal. I had to change like the way I speak about this now in later years because I know there's so many different dietary restrictions I'm going to offend someone. So I can't tell you an actual meal because then, you know, someone's going to be mad at me. But I know what meal I'm thinking of. Delicious, right? And that's a good thing. That's a gift from God. But when we start thinking that food is the only place we can run to for comfort, that becomes our idol. And soon gluttony becomes the problem. It becomes the, the, the actual, the idol is the factory that produces the sin. You guys walking with me on that? So the idol of, of comfort produces a sin of gluttony. And we don't even recognize that it was all rooted in something that was still good and a gift from God. I can go on. I can do this all day. The idols enslave us because we get convinced that we have to give our time to these things. We have to give our energy to these things. We have to give our talent, our money, our affections, or else we're going to be miserable. It's what every advertisement does to you every time you turn on the television. If you don't have this product, you'll be miserable. You'll lose your hair tomorrow. All the guys are like, I am losing my, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. I need this. Girls, if you don't look like, if you don't get this product, you will not have the Instagram results that you need. Moms, if you don't purchase this kind of unique organic nutrition, your child will not be intelligent. They will not make it in this world, this fast paced world. Your marriage ain't going to make it unless you do this. And all these products are, are given out to us to say, this is what you need in order to make you complete. And Jesus steps in and says, actually, You've abandoned the only thing that makes you complete, me. The real peace, the real joy, the real satisfaction, it's all in Jesus. And Ephesus knew that from the jump. They recognized all of the faulty lies of their idols. So when you think of this letter to Ephesus, I want you to think of it for what it really is. It is a, an invitation letter to covenant renewal. He's telling Ephesus, I remember where you were at first. You've gone into some really beautiful practices but what I really miss was the love. He's telling, let's, let's renew our vows. <laughs> that happens often in the Old Testament, right? There's a covenant renewal with Israel. And sometimes we just pass right over this. Friends, Christians, we need to hear the words of the Lord Jesus and say there needs to be a, a vow renewal. That remembering of love, that, that remembering of that first love and coming back. What does it look like? Well, it looks like 
it looks like remembrance, repentance, and returning. Obedience. Now listen, I don't know what obedience is going to look like for you, and I need to be clear about that. Like each and every one of us, only you know whenever I was saying some of that stuff, what really landed. And, and I hope that, you know, I can't make this happen. I hope you're not mad at me because I don't know what it was, but you know what it was. And usually whenever you feel it, you're like, oh, I don't want to punch that guy. And that's why I usually hide. But I, I, only you know that. Only you know what that is. But here's what I might say. Obedience might look like fasting from some of this mess. Like it might look like saying, hey, I know that's a good thing. It's, just got, it's not going to be a God thing for me. I'm going to step away from it for a while. Not because I think that it's the problem. I'm the problem. Obedience could look like confessing to your home group, your spouse, maybe a good, solid Christian brother or sister, these sins that you have learned to basically live with the smoke in your house and say, I don't want to be coy with this anymore. I want to bring it to the light. Obedience might look like laying things down and deciding I'm not going to pick it back up again until the Lord brings it back to me, like an Abraham Isaac kind of thing. Here's what I can trust. I trust the Spirit's going to illuminate it for you. But what I know that I can say with confidence is obedience to Jesus' words here means we can't continue on. If we know that this lands, if we know that this is true, we can't continue on the same way. So let us not, not just say, you know what, that was a great sermon, and then return right back. Say, okay, what is it that the Lord's trying to bring me to now? Now, I say this from a pastoral heart, the rebuke is severe because the threat is to shut the church down if you don't repent. That's what Jesus says. I'll remove the lampstand. That's a severe threat. It's a severe threat. Later, we're going to get to the church at Sardis, which is the church that Jesus basically had already shut down a long time ago, but they just keep having services. They were dead. They had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead a long time ago. Far be it from us, Providence, that we ever get to that place where we convince ourselves that we're alive and we got a reputation of aliveness, but deep down in our hearts, we actually have forgotten our first love, so we're just doing the motions. Like puppets that aren't real boys, like Pinocchio, right? Idols are like thorns and weeds. They tangle their way into our hearts and they make rooting them out so painful, so hardcore. My son had his tonsils taken out this week and I've been walking with, he did not like it. He had lots of things going on. He had tonsils, adenoids, his lip was uh, snipped, his tongue was snipped for a tongue tie. He was just, he was roughing it, okay? Poor kid. And after he got out, he couldn't talk, but he's just, I could tell he's mad. I'm like, are you mad? He's like, so he's been mad a couple days. But I've been trying to work with him through it to say, like, I know this hurts, but he wasn't sleeping good at night. Um, he'd been struggling with his speech or so many different things that I know this is going to help him. So I've been walking with him through. You're not going to have to worry about this, son. You're not going to have to worry about getting sick. You can actually sleep at night. I'm telling him all of the rewards, but sometimes the pain can be so blaring in our ears that we don't see the rewards at the end. And I want to do what I've been doing with my son all week to give you the reward as the reminder here. What Jesus says at the end here is what's supposed to supersede all of our fears of pain as the great physician cuts the idols out of our hearts. Because it's not that it's not going to be painful. It is. It's that the joy is greater than the pain. This is Jesus' words. He says, let the, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, who is in the paradise of God. The result of hearing Jesus' words and responding is actually what we're seeking. And we've been seeking our whole lives. Life. Life abundant, life full, life whole, joy, peace, hope, all the things you deeply desire the most, Jesus says, that's what I'll give you. 
I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Those are the words of Christ. Satan has come that he might steal life from you, kill you, destroy you. But Jesus has come to provide for you that which you deeply want the most. And so my prayer this morning is, may God give us ears to hear. Give us ears to hear you, Jesus, and respond. However that looks for you this morning, I pray you'd pray that as you worship this morning. God, give me ears to hear and respond as you would have me. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray. Father, I want to start by asking you that you would protect us from condemnation. The enemy is so keen to ride on the heels of hard words and to condemn so that we don't find life in you, but we go down the spiral of self-loathing to self-justification, self-loathing to self-justification. So Jesus, preserve us from that. Guard our hearts from condemnation, and instead, Holy Spirit, would you let the conviction land so that we might find joy in repentance and faith, peace in repentance and faith. My God, would you return us to our first love? We pray the prayer of David, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Whatever we brought in here that's making us feel overwhelmingly burdened, we ask that it would be quickly and swiftly brushed off of our shoulders by the love that you will outpour this morning. As we worship, may it be freeing. The areas of our life you call us to obedience, Lord, make it clear to us. And give us the courage to not just seek to obey, but to do it together in community with one another. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.